0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Pod, we got to sit down and speak with Austin Federa, the head of strategy at the Solana Foundation and the host of the Validated Podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation with Austin as we dug into a variety of topics, including the value proposition of the Solana blockchain, how the ecosystem fared as the community faced its shares of successes and adversity in 2020 through today, the growth of the Solana network, the expansion of the validators that are securing that network, recent major partnerships with Visa and Shopify, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, and that nothing should be taken as financial advice. The host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. So check out the disclaimer on the Neo News Today website for more information. With all that said, I really enjoyed this conversation with Austin, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Austin Federa of the Solana Foundation. Very excited to have you on the show, Austin. You have a really awesome background, not only in the Solana ecosystem, but you're also the host of your own podcast. And you also were with the marketing teams at Bison Trails and at Republic and Republic Crypto. So you have a kind of vast background in the blockchain and crypto space. So I'm really excited to chat with you today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I kind of want to jump off the conversation with a bit of a philosophical shill, if you will. I'm really excited to be chatting with you because Solana kind of rose to prominence during the last bull run. And it's still this project that's three and a half-ish years old. And there is a lot of adversity, both from like the social and public outlook perspective as well as from just like the network perspective that the ecosystem has gone under. So I'm really curious to hear, what do you think are some of the kind of leading lights or the things that helped keep the Solana ecosystem unified and together and to really kind of forge through these trials and tribulations?
1: Yeah, you know, if you look at the history of builders on the Solana network, it has always been and continues to be today that the folks who pick Solana to build on, they pick it for a reason, and they pick it because they can't build what their vision is on any other network. And that may be due to innate technical reasons, or that may just be to economic reasons, right? The transactions on the Solana network are cheap, fast, and abundant. That's three words of characteristics that you can't really say about other networks. Additionally, it runs in one global state machine. And so that means you don't have to worry about sharding. You don't have to worry about layer twos and threes and layer 47s out into the future for scalability. You don't have to worry about centralized sequencers. You don't have to worry about multisigs. Like, it is just Solana network, right? And so that combination of things has always made it a network where people building different kinds of applications come here, that can be low-level applications like something like squads and fuse, which are like multi-sig and account abstraction wallets and and all of that sort of deep technical stuff. That can also be stuff like Jupyter Aggregator, which is a DeFi routing engine that'll hit half a dozen marketplaces when you do, you know, a $10 trade to make sure you're getting the best price possible on-chain. That sort of composability is not possible in Layer 2 ecosystems, and it doesn't really work on networks like Ethereum because the fees are so high that it really prevents someone from being able to do that. And L2 is fractured liquidity, they fracture state. That's the point of an L2 is to fracture the state and to scale a piece of that state in the process. Some people look at sort of the Solana community, especially after the collapse of FTX last year, and are like, oh man, how are they going to get through this? From my perspective and my position at the Solana Foundation, it was really never a question of, will they get through this? It was sort of, when is everyone going to see that the community is going to come through this just fine, right? And that's because the stuff that is built on Solana, it's not like it can just move somewhere else. These are different kinds of applications, different kinds of founders— Much more of a focus on building consumer-focused, consumer-ready products like Sling, which launched during Breakpoint, which is a peer-to-peer money transfer system similar to Venmo. The user interface is, you know, head and shoulders above anything else you see in the blockchain space. And these types of applications really find a home on the network. And that's kind of one of the things I think that sets the tenor of the Solana ecosystem apart from other ecosystems. Interesting. So
0: it's almost like the underlying technology and how it differentiates itself from other blockchain ecosystems is sort of the stickiness that allows Solana to kind of thrive during
1: the rough times. Oh, yeah. I mean, a core thesis of mine is that when you create disruptive scale and disruptive performance, people build applications you could never even imagine they would build. And, you know, the classic example of this is high-speed internet, I don't think we thought the web of today was going to come out of the transition from a 56K modem to a 1.5 megabit DSL to a 20 megabit cable line to a 100 megabit fiber optic connection. It'd be pretty hard to look back and say, like, oh, this social networks are an obvious effect of us going from dial-up to DSL. Well, turns out they kind of were in retrospect, but we didn't really think that was going to be the case. Streaming is another great example of this. I mean, the iPhone came out, And it changed dating forever. But I don't think anyone looked at the iPhone and was like, yes, Tinder, that's what's going to get built on this platform. And that's kind of a really big differentiator, I would say, is that that drive to say, you know, transacting on Solana is 10,000 times to 100,000 times cheaper than other networks and the transaction capacity is significantly higher. You know, it's pushing multiple thousands, if not 10,000 transactions per second in steady state of the network today, and we're working on projects with Firedancer that may 10x that from that standpoint as well. And this is sort of like the compounding of performance is, I would say, like a cultural value that the folks at Solana Labs, at Solana Foundation, at, you know, Firedancer, at Jito, at SIG, Mango at all of these different core contributor teams hold really as a true tenant is like, we should make blockchain as fast and as cheap and as scalable as humanly possible. And everything else sort of is downstream from that. This is the same sort of compounding that TSMC used to make itself the fab in the world that literally no one else can compete with because they can do things no one else can because they focused much more on improving technology than improving profit margin.
0: I love that perspective, like have your mission vision at the technological layer kind of solidified so that the builders can kind of come into the ecosystem and all align based off of that. It's very objective and fact based and rational, which is something that I think anyone in the crypto space can enjoy, especially if you've been here for a few years. So I'm actually really curious before we start digging into a lot of the great topics you just brought up. What was your genesis into blockchain and crypto in general. Do you remember the first time you heard about Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other network? And what was kind of your initial thoughts when you first stumbled across this asset class and industry? So
1: I bought some Bitcoin in college back in like uh, probably 2011 or something. And I think it was on Mt. Gox and it just completely disappeared. Right. And that was back at the time when like Bitcoin storage was not easy. They were like, ah, buy this encrypted hard drive. It costs $120. I'm like, I'm in college. This sucks. Like, I'll write it down somewhere. And of course, like, you lose the thing you write down. But then coming back around in 2017, I was working for a fintech company that was trying to pivot into basically building a borrow-lend token on Ethereum, although we wouldn't call it DeFi at the time. It was sort of very early precursors of DeFi. That company ended up basically going bankrupt a few months later uh, as a startup. But, you know, from there, I was bit by the bug of like, okay, smart contracts, software development in a decentralized manner for global networks, like, there's something interesting here and I don't know what it is because back in twenty seventeen, like there weren't that many interesting things built on blockchain, right? This is where the very, very early beginnings of DeFi were starting to emerge. But other than that, it was like, here's a smart contract on Ethereum. You can use it for practically nothing, but conceptually it's very cool. Right. And as we know, like Ethereum changed the world. But from there I went on and worked at Republic, where I ran marketing for Republic. I launched Republic Crypto with them which was a great experience. You know, we did a bunch of like crazy stuff in that market cycle leading up to the collapse and even sort of after that 2018 collapse. Then worked for a few stealth infrastructure companies for a few years and then joined Bison Trails where I worked on product marketing there and product until their acquisition by Coinbase at the end of 2020.
0: And so you got acquired. Why didn't you want to stick around with Bison? Was it sort of like a acquisition and then kind of gutting? Or were you just like ready to
1: look into something else? Yeah, there were some layoffs in the process, as happens in pretty much every acquisition, because Bison Trails got folded in wholesale to Coinbase and became Mm -hmm. Coinbase Cloud, which it still is today. But, you know, I think for me, the idea of going to work for a really large publicly traded company, even one that's doing blockchain stuff, it didn't seem as interesting to me. I think that the work that's being done on the forefront of blockchain is not being done at exchanges, it's being done at protocols. And... It just seemed like a really great time to actually go work for either a a Layer 2 that was being built or one of the, quote, alt L1s that was up and coming at the time. And Solana was not actually even on my list. At Bison Trails, I'd worked with over 30 different protocols. And at that point, I wasn't really seriously looking at Solana. I was looking at a bunch of other Layer 1s and Layer 2s. But a guy I used to work with, Ben Sprango, hit me up and said, hey, I just joined Solana Labs from Multicoin. I'd hired him at Republic, and he's like, you should come and talk with us. And I was like, I don't know, like, I haven't heard anything about Solana. Like, it just seems like a weird, fast network that's doing things that no one seems to agree on. He's like, yes, that's the point. Come talk to Raj and And so I got on a call with them, and 30 hours later, we had a signed offer letter. I was really taken with Toli's vision for one global state machine for all of the problems that were going to arise in sharding, which were all subsequently true. And the L2 architecture, to me, it didn't make sense to fracture the state in this way. And so, you know, it's been almost uh, three years at this point. So it's been a great time here. I've been having a really
0: fun time kind of digging into Validated, your podcast, and listening to the most recent episode. And it's kind of shocking how tribalism can kind of put people's blinders on when it comes to a network. Like I cut my teeth in the Neo ecosystem and I've been covering that blockchain project and all the projects building on it since 2018. So I'm very in tune with why one would want to go work for like an L1, especially at a foundation level. But you kind of hear these tidbits and these sound bites, and nobody really kind of looks into what's really going on in an ecosystem. So I think that that's really fascinating. You got to join Solana Foundation at an early time when it was unknown. You had this like super rise to prominence, and then an equal kind of like fall with like a negative association with a bad actor in the space. But decentralized networks are decentralized. So I would argue that 2021 to 2022, you had the highs and the lows. What were kind of the things that kept you grounded while you're experiencing this kind of meteoric rise in popularity, token number went up like crazy, and then you had this equal and opposite reaction. So you had to really be grounded because my dad likes to say, don't ride your highs too high or your lows too low. So what was the guiding light that kept you stable during the rise and kind of like the negative perception, because I don't want to say fall, I think Solana has a phenomenal narrative that's reemerging. So like to say fall is wrong, but during a negative time.
1: I mean, I would say there was a fall, you know, if you look at November and December of 2022, like user activity dropped, you know, investor confidence went to zero. The real true testament there are that no teams left Solana. There were no technical teams that left the network at that time. There were a few NFT projects that left, but NFT projects are portable anyway. They don't really care what blockchain they're on, besides from an economic perspective. But the developers who were building on the network, they really were like, oh, no, this technology has not gotten any worse since November, right? If anything, it's gotten much better. And so their willingness to stick it out, their willingness to say, like, look, What we're going through is terrifying, but at the same time, like, this is the place where I can build my vision as a founder. And I'm sure a bunch of them did diligence about, like, what would it look like if we moved to another chain? And they all sort of came to the conclusion of, like, we really can't build what we want to build there. We've got to really be building it on Solana. And so, you know, seeing the community come together and have that sort of resolve to get through this was incredibly powerful. On a personal note, a mistake I see a lot of people making in this space is They join a network they think is going to be worth a lot of money, and it's one of the worst mistakes you can make. I mean, so many times in my career, if I had been optimizing for money, if I had been optimizing for what was the highest expected return at the time, I would have made a decision that would have either been a negative or at least would have been significantly less. At the time, all of the cool, sexy networks, you know, at the time that Bison Trails got acquired... It was not Solana. There's a bunch of other networks now that like Solana is significantly higher in the market cap ratings then. But what I saw, you know, at the time in January of 21 saying, you know, to talk with Raj and Toli was like, I really believe in this technology stack. I think this is the right way to build a blockchain that's meant to be web scale, is meant to fit all of the users of the world in one global state machine. Even if the actual business doesn't work out, I'm going to learn a ton being part of this organization and going through this like wild journey together with them. And you know what? Like it worked. Stuff worked. And the adoption numbers, you know, started kicking in and this was sort of what we saw through this. And so I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. It is very hard to be... And an organization at a company that everyone says is like, you know, all all the Twitter threaders are saying Solana's doomed, Solana's over, Solana will never go above $2 again, like the network's going to zero, right? And this was also like, we'd seen this happen with Terra just like a few months earlier. It was not impossible that a network could fail and it could never recover from that. Now, Solana had a lot going for it as a general compute environment that really had no peer at the time and I think still doesn't today. But it is hard to stay ground in those moments. It's scary. You have to take a lot of walks. You got to make sure you're going outside, right? If you're just <laughs> like, it's so easy to war room when you're going through something like this. But like, this is one of those things that I think folks underestimate is an emergency is exhilarating, right? It's not great, but emergency is like your adrenaline kicks in like 48 hours, 72 hours. Let's go. Let's do this thing. When it's a four-month slog and a slow decline in token price and everyone's telling you something's over, that is much mentally harder on folks. I will say at the foundation, we had zero attrition, though. Everyone who worked here, even though we all got job offers from other networks, like sometimes even the day after, which was a little rude. We'd all get job offers that are like, oh, come work at X or Y or Z network because they recognize the talent of folks who are building on this network. And I think we had no attrition to other networks. We had a few folks who left for their own personal reasons, but it's not like they went to, you know, a competitive blockchain or something along those lines. And I think if in November of last year, you had told me this is where we'll be a year later, I would not have believed you. Even though there was no doubt in my mind and the doubt in the minds of like most folks, building on Solana that like the network would recover. I think the pace of this recovery has been really impressive to watch and see. And it's in credit entirely to the builders. It's entirely because the pace of companies building on Solana is just ship, 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 and they're building stuff you don't see anywhere else.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think in the most recent validator health report, which by the way, is awesome. I would love to see more ecosystems go into this. You know, I've been in the blockchain space full-time since 2018, and like to see the Nakamoto coefficient, like to learn these new things, this is why I love this space. So I wanna kind of delve into that a little bit, but you've brought up this term a couple of times, and I just wanna make sure that our listeners who might not be as degenerate as you and I are on the same page, when you're really entranced by this idea of the global state machine, can you just kind of like Eli5, like an elevator pitch, what that really means. And maybe because we also spoke about like the bifurcation that L2s do with Ethereum and splitting up the ability for an L2 and an L1 to agree on the same state. Can we just also touch upon
1: that? Yeah, so one global state means that for lack of a better term, all of the data is in the same database. From a consumer version, it's sort of all your files and folders are locally stored on your computer. And so what this means is that stuff can... Establish trust, it can read directly from other programs, other state on the network. And this is really important because it means every program has the ability to determine what is true based on an objective data set, which is the single global state machine. And to be clear, this is Bitcoin. Bitcoin runs in one global state. Ethereum used to run in one global state as well. This is what made Ethereum so powerful is that a smart contract could go from one DeFi application to another DeFi application to another DeFi application. This is the whole concept of like a flash loan. A flash loan does not work unless you can trust every piece of state in the system. And so that's kind of the core thesis of Solana is that synchronize all of the world's information as close to the speed of light as possible in one global state. And that's how Jupyter Aggregator works. That's how all these different systems work that have to touch multiple pieces of state. And there's a few things in the way Solana's built that make that really easy to do, and we can get into some of that later if you want. But L2s are different. L2s are creating a copy of blockchain And they're basically saying, a whole group of transactions will just execute in this environment. And a bunch will just be here. And a bunch will just be here. And the analogy here is sort of like, if you have multiple banks, if you have your money in Chase, you can't go to Bank of America and say, hey, give me a loan. They're going to be like, no, your money's in a different bank. Move your money to us, and then we'll give you a loan. You know, I can't like a post from Facebook on Twitter. That's just something that can't happen because they're two separate pieces of state in two separate applications that are not actually connected to one another. And yes, you can build transfer systems. Like I can move money from a Chase account to a Bank of America account, but it takes time. It Mm -hmm. involves trust. I have to trust that the bank is actually moving that money. And, you know, when it comes to blockchain, trust is a dirty word, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) trust is not what you want. You want to know things for certain. You don't want to have to trust a bridge. You don't want to have to wait for things to move from one piece of state to another. And so this is kind of a very big architectural difference between Solana and other networks.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like the whole ecosystem is quite sticky when one app can verify the state according to another apps. So this brings up all sorts of questions of interoperability with other networks, but we'll touch upon that in a little bit. I do want to kind of dig into the validator health report because there's a lot of really cool information that came out of that. At least it was quite enlightening for me like I hadn't realized how decentralized the validator network was for Solana and that this includes itself two separate validator sets, a consensus node and an RPC nodes, so you have like a breadth there. The introduction of the Nakamoto coefficient which essentially determines what percentage of validators need to be compromised for the network to be compromised itself. And then also just the geographic distribution of where the validator nodes are, and then a little bit about the multiple clients that are arising out of the Solana ecosystem. So I kinda wanna talk a little bit about all of that, but first let's talk about the geographic distribution of the nodes because in decentralization, it's a spectrum. You don't always need a centralized solution. You don't always need a decentralized solution. And then there's also various different types of spectra within decentralization. There's governance, there's geographic, there's token distribution at the foundation level versus how many retail owners have it. So what's kind of your main takeaway or the thing that solidifies where the direction of the network is going from the most
1: recent report that did come out in October? So based off of all that, what do you want to talk about first? Let me just start with the validator health reports in general. So Amira Valiani, who's our head of public policy, puts these together about every six months. And we started doing these because people didn't know, right? There was an assumption that there were 60 Solana validators or some tiny validator set. That's true for many other networks, right? There are very small sets of validators for a lot of these blockchains that exist, Solana is closer to Ethereum than any of these other networks. And that's kind of the point of these reports, is to put out an objective, highly cited, data-driven report that says, here's the current state of the network, the good, the bad, the ugly, and also here are all of the citations so you can go fact-check this. Don't take our word for it. Go check these data sources yourself. It's weird that this is not common in blockchain. It's very strange how, like, You have investor reports, and you have these sort of price target reports that come out, but very few people actually go through and put out like an objective report on the network level of a lot of these blockchains. So we're like, "Ah, (laughs) yeah, let's do it. How do we make anyone take us seriously? Aggressive citations. And Amira actually has like a, she's our head of public policy, but she has like a government background. She worked in the Obama White House. Like she's very used to having to cite every single source that comes in. And so we get these really compelling, but also easy to read reports that come out. And so part of that process includes us internally deciding what do we think are important metrics people should know. Nakamoto Coefficient tells one story, and it's an important story. It's the number of entities you have to compromise in order to disrupt the operations of the network. On Solana, it's about 24, I believe, today. On you know, something like Ethereum, it's also about 20 because of Lido, right? There's 20 Lido operators, and if they all collude, that's over 33% of the ETH stake. And you can get to 51% too with Lido, and you know that gets to about 25 if you're using that metric. The stake distribution around the world is another one. You don't want too much stake in any one country because if a country turned off all those nodes, right, like if the United States was like, we've banned blockchain tomorrow and ISPs and everyone in data centers start blocking blockchain connections. It doesn't matter if everyone's running a node at home, they're still running it through the Verizon ISP and at that point like if the ISP is blocking it, that's it, right? So geographic distribution matters. The other piece that matters a lot is validator client diversity. So Solana has two validator clients today, which actually share a lot of the similar code base. There's the Solana Labs validator client, and then JITO makes a validator client that's a MEV-optimized client. And Gito code is probably 90% similar to Solana Labs code, so it provides mm-hmm. social robustness but not necessarily technical robustness. For the technical client diversity, there's a major project underway called Firedancer, which Jump Trading Group is building, and that is a total rewrite of the validator client in C. It's a much more performant validator client. Early benchmarks are 10 to 100x faster on a lot of the key components. That just hit testnet. So, you know, who knows, maybe in a year we'll see it on mainnet as well. Additionally to that, there is a client being written in the language of zig, and that client is called sig syndica's building that as well so it's really interesting and cool to see all these different new validator clients getting built and this is kind of a major mark of decentralization and growing up for the solana ecosystem today only bitcoin and ethereum have two independent validator clients and soon solana will uh, join those ranks
0: so what is the language that the original solana labs incubated client is running on top of because having diversity in clients if there's a bug in one of the clients, then the other client might not be impacted or affected by that. And for listeners who might not be too in the weeds, essentially a client acts as an operating system for a blockchain ecosystem. So when you can have a game running on Windows and Apple, if there's a major bug in your Windows version, you can still play on your Apple version. For the non-tech person, that's kind of how I've deduced it. Another kind of interesting similarity that you and I have and that I'm kind of picking up at Solana Labs is my previous career as an urban planner. I worked in various different governments. So I was a technocrat, but it sounded like some other folks at Solana Labs might have been in positions where folks were elected. So what do you think this kind of background in public policy or maybe in the public domain and traditional governance structures, what is the benefit that you think that that brings to Such an industry that values computer science folks and previous finance folks.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure we have anyone who is actually properly elected, but we definitely have folks who worked in political offices and political appointments right in the executive branch. But I said this a bunch that some of the hardest problems for blockchain over the next 10 years are not technical. They're social. You know, at this point, we kind of know what blockchains need to do in order to scale and it's just work. It's not inventing new computer science. It's a lot of hard software engineering, but it's fundamentally just work. The social consensus piece is much harder. I don't think there's any network that has truly good on-chain governance today. I think Solana does a pretty decent job, but like Bitcoin is kind of run by just the core maintainer groups. Like It's actually very hard to engage with a lot of these blockchains on a governance level. So that's a huge social component of this too. Lido running a huge percentage of Ethereum stake is another social issue. It's not a technical mm-hmm. issue. They could pretty easily write some code into the contract that says, like, no operators can have over this much percentage. There's a lot of things that actually require social solutions as opposed to technical solutions. How do you decide what new features should be included in the latest release of the Solana blockchain now that you have three independent teams building validator clients? That's a human problem. That's a governance problem. That's a messy problem, right? And so those are the muscles, I think, that like the foundation is really helping the ecosystem build up at this point. It's not, oh, all the smartest engineers work for Solana Labs and like they're building stuff for the ecosystem. Quite the opposite at this point. It is more that we have to help a lot of folks who are deeply technical figure out how you build social consensus around new ideas. And this is where I think she died a few years ago, but Eleanor Ostrom and her work on common pool resource management and collective governance of organizations is really important, I think, for the blockchain space. She won the Nobel Prize in economics for her work on sort of solving the tragedy of the commons problem. And it's incredibly pertinent research and work, I think, to the problem of building and maintaining blockchains.
0: Do you think that taking these kind of new studies and applying them in whichever ways you can at the human consensus layer, the layer zero, if you will, I think that's what the bankless guys have kind of been pushing for that kind of term for that. Do you think that you're seeing progress in this way? And I only ask this because if you look back to the 2016 elections here in the States, that was a highly divisive time. Everybody hated Trump, but only 50% of America voted. So you still have these issues where A, you have to educate people, but then B, you still have to get them to put their boots on the ground and come to the voting booth. So are you seeing that these new and innovative ways in which you're looking at introducing governance, are you seeing traction amongst like the retail Solana hodlers? Or is this still more at like the validator layer where you have more of a relationship with the folks who are securing the Solana network?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the U.S. elections are always an interesting one because other countries don't have this problem. Other democracies have lots of people vote. There's two very easy ways to solve this. A reverse poll tax is the easiest way to solve this. (laughs) Pay people to vote. The other version is you charge people who don't vote, right? These Mm -hmm. are actually like economically very easy to solve this problem. Socially, we are incentivized not to have everyone vote. Both political parties benefit if only the most radical voters vote. And both political parties actually hate swing voters, right? Swing voters are the problem. They're unpredictable. Everyone else you can plug into a mathematical model and you can say, if I pump X amount of ad dollars into this market, I'll get my base to turn out, right? Democrat or Republican. Swing voters are different, right? And so this is kind of where both parties benefit from telling people that it doesn't matter if you vote because your vote is just one in 300 million, which is like, of course, not true if you live in a swing state. Me in New York, yeah, my vote is pretty useless, right? Like, we know how New York's going to vote every time. Right. It's fine. If you're in a deep red state, same thing. There's, you know, seven or 10 states where 70,000 votes decided the election, both in 2020 and in 2016. Sort of to go off that deviation, right? Like there are deep entrenched social reasons that our electoral system is set up the way it is. These are not technical problems to go full circle in this. These are social problems, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean, right? I think if you look at like blockchain governance and like where things are with a network like Solana, it takes time to build up those muscles. And I think the other piece is that you need an informed electorate. And if you have an informed electorate, you're going to get better decision making. What does that mean in blockchain? Joe Schmo, who holds a bunch of tokens that he bought on Binance and has never moved to a ledger, like, I don't really know if that person has a particularly interesting take on what the future of Bitcoin or Solana or Ethereum should be. That being said, there are many other folks who do care passionately and maybe actually hold very few tokens because they are just not rich individuals, but they have great ideas for how this stuff can work. And this is where Mm -hmm. I think Solana's governance framework is pretty interesting. So validators actually vote on governance as opposed to stakeholders. And so the cool piece here is like if I delegate my tokens to a validator that validator then votes on what new version to adopt and feature activation. And so activating a new feature on the network or upgrading to a new version requires 80% of the stake weight to adopt the new software version. And so what that means is, you know, I may have no informed opinions on what the governance of the sauna network should be, but there's this guy on twitter that i really like and he runs a validator and i'm going to delegate my tokens to his validator because i actually think that he makes a lot of good points i think he is probably a person i would trust to vote in my stead on new features and new adoptions on this network and i think that's probably not ideal but it's better than any other system i've seen to date and we'll figure it out mm-hmm. over time right this is the whole thing about like democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the rest <laughs> So two things. What's like the scale
0: of what gets voted on? So in the Neo ecosystem where my team is a council member, so some of the things that we might vote on are like network parameters to reduce the price of gas for transaction fees. So the scope of what gets voted on, is it technical in that way? Or is it also social, like maybe increasing rewards for staking to a validator node? And then secondly, how easy is it to migrate from one validator to another? Because like in the Cosmos ecosystem, there's an unbonding period. So let's say suddenly my favorite validator node in the Solana ecosystem, I don't agree with their perspectives and opinions, and I want to migrate to another validator node. How quick is that process?
1: Yeah, so the unbonding period on Solana is one epoch, which is about two and a half to three days. So it's a pretty quick unbonding. That's enough time where votes are not less than that much time, right, for the most part. In terms of what is actually gone through, you know, it's a lot of implicit governance. It's not exactly explicit governance. So implicit governance is sort of to say, here's what's in this release. If everyone adopts it, we can do a feature activation. And beforehand, there's sort of been a lot of calls and, you know, discussions on GitHub through the SIMD process about, like, what would a change be? So, for example, the first real thing the Solana network voted on was to turn on staking rewards and inflation, right? And that required 80% of the stake weight adopting a new software version that included that feature. So if you hit 80% in one epoch, at the end of that epoch, the feature will automatically be activated and it will take effect in the next epoch. So it's basically a system where if folks thought that was a bad decision, they just wouldn't install the software. And then as long as it stays less than 80% adopting it, the feature cannot be activated on the network. Even if 66%, which is a super majority of the network, they would have to actively hard fork in order to do something like that. So it's a pretty Mm -hmm. interesting system. In terms of other types of things that might get added, there's a really robust technical discussion that takes place both in Discord and in GitHub about things like how should local fee markets be added or adopted? Right? Things like that, as we go through the network, they go through a lot of technical diligence. And some of those things, I would say, are indirect changes to the economic model, Right, like adding local fee markets adds priority fees. Priority fees change the economics of running a validator. They make it slightly more profitable. And it also slightly increases the amount of burn of tokens on the network because priority fees can also be burned, or you know, half of them can be burned. And so that creates new sort of economic incentives, but it's same economic system at the base layer. If someone was going to say, we want to divert 10% of all burned tokens to a retroactive public goods fund or quadratic funding like, a, you know, Cubix mm-hmm. or something like that, that would need to go through a validator vote for that process to happen. Those sort of changes can't just be pushed through.
0: Yeah. And so there's also another interesting line that I want to hear your insights on. So Block Zero is a validator conference for the validators in the Solana ecosystem. So what does the relationship with Solana Labs look like with the validators? Because it still is only just the three-year-old network. And maybe you wanna foster these sort of relationships so that the validators are on the same page with Labs or is Labs just kind of providing a resource and maybe validators wanna take part in what Labs has to offer? I'm just like really curious to hear those relationships.
1: So the network operators have by far the most insight into what is actually happening with the infrastructure. So Solana Labs and Solana Foundation do not run block-producing validators on the network. It is entirely a community-run network to that effect. And so folks like Brian Long from Triton, they provide really invaluable insights and feedback into like, what is it like to run 50 validators? They find problems, they report bugs, they propose fixes. Hey, we really need these kind of tools and this kind of optionality. Like, it is the validators who basically said, look, we need flow control on packet ingest. And raw UDP just isn't cutting it because we can't manage ourselves against, like, a distributed denial-of-service attack. That's where Quic came from, right, as a networking technology to replace raw UDP. And so the validators are really driving a lot of the operational side forward in terms of like what the requirements are for that stuff. I mean, some of the recent changes to how the accounts database is managed dropped RAM requirements by 4X. And that was because validators were basically saying, hey, a ton of the RAM usage is just this accounts database. There's gotta be a better place to store this than just RAM, is NVMe fast enough? And, you know, it took a few engineers like a year To get that all working, but the answer is like, yeah, totally. We can do this in fast SSD storage as opposed to doing it in RAM. That's still fast enough. SSDs are much cheaper than RAM, so like this is a win for everyone on the network. And so, you know, there's those sorts of insights that really, you know, the engineering work is not necessarily done by the validators, but the ideation, the concepting, a lot of that really does come from the validator community.
0: Yeah, I guess because your validators are ultimately like the first user they represent the folks who, who stake to them. So they themselves are like super users. And this also gives them an opportunity to kind of voice the opinion of the people we're building for in blockchain, which is take our titles aside for what we do. They're basically you and me, folks who are interested in technology. One of the things that I found of that if you look up at a very surface level, why people don't like Solana is because there might be high technical requirements for running a validator. So can you just share some insights into, like, if I'm a mom and pop kind of person who works at home and is interested in running a validator, am I going to be able to? And also, what are the pros and cons with maybe outsourcing that to like a third party data center?
1: Yeah. So Solana, the main technical requirement is bandwidth. Solana is a high-throughput, high-performance blockchain, and that necessitates higher data rates and data transfers. And so, you know, if you have fiber optic internet that's, you know, 700 megs symmetric, you're fine, right? And that's actually a lot of people nowadays around the world do have that tier of internet connection. You can run a validator at home just fine. You know, from a hardware perspective, it's probably $2,500, $3,000 of hardware if you want to buy it all and run it at home yourself. Lots of people do that, but like at the end of the day, a lot of the folks who run validators have a business use case to run that validator, either because they have enough tokens that it makes economic sense to run a validator as opposed to delegating it out, or their business requires them to run nodes for a various, you know, whatever reason it requires them to. And so there's definitely home operators who run their own nodes too, so that's an option. I think less people run nodes at home you know, all of blockchain than you'd believe on Twitter, right? I think (laughs) half of ETH nodes are run in data centers and businesses. We forget the DevOps overhead, right? Everyone's like, oh, I can buy a Raspberry 4 and I can, you know, run a node on it. It's like, yes, you can, but you have to update the software pretty often. Like, if you have it running on auto-update, there's no point in running a node at home, right? Like, the minute you are just sort of blindly accepting all of the software that comes your way and installing it, as if it's like an Apple software update, like you've given up that sense of running your own node. And I think that's a piece that people skim over very quickly. Now, the downsides mm-hmm. of running in a data center are that you may have to move, right? The data center could change its policies and say like, actually, like here's a 30-day notice. We don't want blockchain stuff in our data center anymore. But there's over 240 data centers all around the world that people run Solana infrastructure in, which is the most broad-based distribution of any network in terms of data center adoption. And so what that means is there's a ton of options available for folks who want to do that. You can also run a node at home. You can also run a node at your business, right? There's lots of optionality there. And so that has contributed to Solana having... Pretty great geographic distribution, pretty great data center distribution. There are a higher percentage of Ethereum nodes run in AWS than there is any sort of single consolidation for the Solana network. And folks don't seem concerned about that. I don't think they should be concerned about that. But it's always been strange to me that they're concerned about it when it comes to Solana, but they're not concerned about it when it comes to Ethereum.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, one of Ethereum's dirty little secrets that if AWS goes down, then the network is going to be running into a lot of issues. And so another kind of like key phrases that I hear in your conversations that we've had in this conversation is high throughput, low latency, being objective and fair. Solana had some downtime, network downtime. And also on the other side of that coin, in Q2 2023, there was 100% uptime. So there were solutions that were presented. Is this technical requirement to provide infrastructure for high throughput, low latency Was this what the root of the issue was for the network downtimes? From like a technical perspective, what were these issues that Solana
1: as an ecosystem was able to address and move past? The vast majority were just bugs in the code, right? Systems that had not been subject to a certain level of traffic that then were subject to it and fell over. And the good news is that's just work, right? That's not like there's a fundamental architectural problem. One of the times the network went down, nodes were getting 80 gigabits of traffic sent to them by an attacker, (laughs) right? That's enough to take down a lot of data centers, right? Let alone, like, (laughs) good luck on your home node running that, right? So the one exception here are local fee markets. So local fee markets were a new feature added to the Solana network. Before that, Solana had no fee markets. And so local fee markets are similar to the global fee markets on Ethereum or other networks, except instead of one fee for everything that is the same for every user, Solana has differentiated fee markets depending on what you're trying to do. And this is because on Solana, transactions are abundant. On Ethereum, transactions are very scarce. So you're competing Mm -hmm. to land any transaction, whereas on Solana, you're competing to land a specific transaction. That specific transaction could be an NFT mint. NFT mints have to go sequentially. And so because of that, you could see a situation where I really want to make sure I get to mint this NFT. So I'm willing to spend $10 to send a transaction or, you know, realistically on Solana, 15 cents compared to the $0.00025 it normally costs to send a transaction. That was the main one where there was actually like a new technological feature added. We talked about quick from a new networking technology as well, which really helped stuff. And the last is stake-weighted QoS, which is sort of a stake-weighted prioritization of inbound transaction systems that exist. And so those sort of three pieces and then just a ton of small performance improvements under the hood some of those to Turbine, which is the block propagation engine, have really resulted in 116, which is the current release of the network. You know, it is the most stable release we've ever released for the network. It is the fastest. It is the smoothest. I think folks have really noticed how much snappier an already snappy network was with 116 coming out, and so that keeps the network at 400 milliseconds of finality, which is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, very impressive. Something that. I am kind of blown away by what you guys are able to do at the foundation level, is attract these kind of large scale names that like my dad knows, like Shopify and Visa. So I wanna talk a little bit about these like really rad partnerships that you guys have been able to establish in the past couple months, or probably you were able to announce in the past couple months, the roots probably run deep with these relationships. So I think something that really excites me And from like a number go up degenerate, this isn't gonna be sexy, but like stable coins are the number one killer use case for cryptocurrency. And Solana recently had USD begin minting on the chain, or maybe it's been, not recently, maybe it's been about a year. There's a lot of tether and circle activity on the chain. So from the foundation's perspective, how did this relationship with circle start? And what does that look like now after they've been here for a while and now you're starting to see Circle be implemented with things like Shopify and maybe even verifying Visa transactions?
1: Yeah, so USDC, I think they adopted Solana in 2020. So USDC has been natively available in Solana for quite a long time at this point. And it's the number two or three in terms of issuance of USDC across all networks, which is pretty awesome to see. There's a lot of stablecoins on Solana, like a lot of stablecoin activity. There's a ton of stablecoin activity because the network is cheap and fast, right? Those are the Mm -hmm. two things you really need. Because if you think about it, like, everyone talks about payments as blockchain's killer feature. But if it costs $2 to send a transaction and you have to wait five minutes for confirmation, that is not competitive, right? You might as well mail a check. (laughs) And so, you know, at that point, this is where a network like Solana is really well-suited to payments. Now, being well-suited to payments means it's well-suited to gaming. It's well-suited to social media networks. It's well-suited to basically anything that requires a lot of transactions that settle very quickly for a very low fee. There's a ton of stuff that falls into that category. And so, you know, Visa has announced that they're scaling their pilot program, which was USD Settlement via USDC, between merchant banks and the Visa main account. And they were originally doing this on Ethereum. And they sort of cut their teeth on Ethereum. And they were like, okay, we're ready to scale this project. And they looked around for, is that through an L2? Is that through a different L1? And in the end, Visa chose to scale that pilot program through Solana. And that's a real endorsement of Solana technology. And that's like one of the really cool things for us to see. From Shopify's perspective, they're like, look, we make our money by charging 1% of all transactions that a user makes on Shopify. So whether you are using a credit card, you're using PayPal, you're using USDC on Solana, we actually don't care what payment method you're using. We get our fees irrespective of that. What they care about is maintaining a good user experience. They don't want to Mm -hmm. turn on payment gateways that are going to be cumbersome and slow and require a bunch of, you know, weird things to work correctly. And so from their perspective, they really like USDC on Solana because the transaction completes in the same amount of time it takes a credit card to approve a transaction. So from Mm -hmm. a user perspective, it's just as snappy paying with USDC as it is American Express or Visa.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Major congratulations to the foundation and to the ecosystem. These are awesome partnerships. And when you have large-scale entities coming to an ecosystem like this, I think it's point in case that there's something successful going on. So that must feel great. You guys recently celebrated your third breakpoint? We did, yes. So what was the vibe like there? Because I've gone on the record stating that I think we're now in a bull market, But regardless of that sentiment, like we are exiting 2021 and 2022, which had negative sentiment. We lost a lot of new market entrants from 2020 and 2021 because they got wrecked and they didn't realize that maybe this is a badge of honor that you have to own before you can really make it in Web3. So what was the vibe of attendees at Breakpoint? Were you seeing retail there? Were you seeing builders? Were you seeing VCs? Were you seeing enterprise folks? Were you seeing government? Who are the types of attendees that were at this event? And with you going there and walking away, how do you feel about the ecosystem and
1: just moving forward in general? Yeah, I mean, there were very few tourists at Breakpoint 2023. I mean, 2021 was like tourist central, right? The network was humming, it just like hit really high valuation marks on, you know, market cap, and and so there were a lot of tourists there. And this year it was an amazing combination of developers, founders, researchers from other ecosystems who were curious about Solana, enterprise folks who are working on, you know, blockchain adoption for their big company and their enterprise. And then, you know, folks who are really Solana curious, who have maybe been in other ecosystems for a number of years, but are starting to look at Solana more seriously. I think the most famous of these is Rune from Maker, right? The co-founder of Maker was on stage at Breakpoint talking about how he thinks the SVM may be the right architecture to build the future of Maker on. And that doesn't mean Maker is leaving Ethereum, but he sees the power of the SVM as, you know, an architecture for the future of this, That also includes people like Justin Bonds, who has been a critic of Solana for a long time, but sort of over the last year has really reversed his thesis and said the network's made a lot of improvements and now he's a fan of how the network works. David Hoffman from Bankless recorded an episode with Anatoly and I at Breakpoint. And (laughs) one of the guys from Bankless Ventures was meeting with potential investments at the conference as well. So I think what we really see is like, a lot of the very sort of serious people who are focused on building and investing showed up at Breakpoint this year, and it was really the strongest Breakpoint conference we've ever had. All the videos are available online on the Solana YouTube channel. I highly recommend going through and looking at the ones that are interesting to you. There's a lot of really great information this year that came out of those four days of programming.
0: Yeah, I listened to the Justin Bonds episode yesterday, and that was great job hosting, great conversation, very thought-provoking. I learned a lot, and anytime I can learn anything after grinding here for almost seven years, I really appreciate that. So the validated podcast has been a great forum, and I can't wait to dig through all the episodes. I live in Denver. I'm in Colorado. I go to as many ETH Denvers as possible, and that was also something I noticed in this year's event: is the multi-chain focus. You know, Near had a whole day on the main stage. There were teams that were hacking on multiple different blockchains. So it's really cool to kind of see you acknowledge that that's kind of expanding into the Solana space and the Solana conference space. It's kind of what's keeping me bullish on this ecosystem moving forward. And so what are the levels of interoperability that at a foundational level, you guys are starting to maybe add to your radar? Because it still sounds like there's a lot of optimization and internal work that you guys are focusing on. You know, multi-clients, expanding your validator set, providing these public forums for people to meet when it comes to like other ecosystems and maybe even being able to make it possible for maker to communicate more easily between ethereum and solana what's kind of the perspective at a foundation level for interoperability and where you see the puck going
1: yeah I mean, I think between D-Bridge and Wormhole and a few others, like there's a very great interconnectivity that exists between Solana and sort of all the major other networks out there. The folks at Polymer Labs, I think, are working on an IBC connector for the Solana network as well into the Cosmos ecosystem. But, you know, folks are already sort of doing that today. One of the core theses of Solana is an execution layer environment. And so what that means is if you want to trade Bitcoin, You should trade Bitcoin on Solana because we have threshold network Bitcoin, which is the first truly decentralized Bitcoin that doesn't exist on the Bitcoin network. Everything else is centralized custody risk. And that's really cool to see. I think if you want to buy Ethereum, you should potentially consider buying it on Solana because you can buy it $20 at a time and you're not paying 10% of that to gas fees. You know, the ApeCoin airdrop should have been on Solana. There's no reason to spend $3,500 claiming an airdrop in terms of gas fees on Ethereum. You should just airdrop it on Solana, and then if you want to migrate back over to Ethereum when gas fees are lower, great, you can totally do that. But this is kind of where the execution environment play of Solana really starts to shine, is it can extend the functionality of other networks over time. And, you know, at the same time, there are other networks that extend the functionality of Solana right? Almost every NFT on Solana is minted on Arweave. Arweave is a decentralized storage network, and that's really awesome to see. Storage on Solana is pretty expensive. So folks actually mint the image for an NFT on Arweave or the video. There's a collaboration between IPFS and a bunch of folks in the Solana ecosystem to decentralized the long-term storage of the Solana ledger into IPFS. The project is called Old Faithful, which is an extension of the Geyser plugin, hence where the name comes from. There's a lot of (laughs) potential interoperability with specialized application blockchains, but I think as a general compute network, which is what Solana is, it's a very strong execution layer for whatever folks want to build.
0: I know this is kind of an unfair question because crypto time moves so quickly and predicting where crypto will be in one year is an impossible task, let alone in five years. But looking out five years now, what's your thesis for what blockchain, crypto, Web3 mainstream adoption looks like? And how will the role that the Solana Foundation plays in the Solana ecosystem help poise
1: this blockchain network for being able to meet those needs? So five years is actually a pretty easy timeline, I think, to look at. On the Solana network, you will have multiple concurrent block producers within a five-year timeline. I expect that stuff folks are already starting to work on, at the very least, they'll be on TestNet. And this is kind of a really important part of that long-term vision, which is to make the network fair, open access, and reduce latency around the world. And so having multiple concurrent block producers is a really good step in that direction. I think you will see the class of enterprise blockchains probably fizzling out I think very much how in the early days, IT departments thought they needed to run their own email servers and they needed to run fiber between all their offices. And eventually they're like, you know what? Google and Microsoft can kind of run these things for us and we can just use the public internet. It's fine. I think you're going to see a very similar thing as tooling improves. And so companies that are highly regulated are going to say, look, we can use something like the token 2022 standard on Solana to create regulated tokens that coexist with other tokens like USDC and BONK and you know whatever else dog money you want to use and that interacting with that token may require KYC and may be transfer restricted but that can coexist the same way that you can have social media on the internet coexist with electronic medical record systems it's all on the internet right there's this idea that in blockchain everything is either totally private or totally open, I think we're going to see much more levels of gradation over the next five years, which is going to lead to increased adoption the same way that the internet is not any one technology. It's a collection of different technologies that exist in one global information system.
0: I really appreciate how you use the internet as kind of like the base case for describing where we're going as blockchain infrastructure becomes more and more apparent in the average mainstream user's day-to-day life. So I think enough of our listeners probably know how to find Solana and where to find more information about that. So to wrap up, what's the best place that folks can listen to the Validated pod or to learn more about the podcast that you host?
1: Podcast is called Validated. We do two episodes a month that come out on Tuesdays. There's a video version on YouTube, and then you can find the audio version, you know, Spotify, Pocket Casts, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Austin, you are obviously very busy. You get to rub elbows with a lot of important folks in the traditional and the blockchain space. So I really wanna thank you for sharing an hour of your time with the Smart Economy podcast today. It was a fascinating discussion to delve into Solana. I personally had a lot of fun doing my research on this conversation and also just kind of like following a lot of the really cool things that have been happening over the past couple months and eager to see the progress that you, your team, and your ecosystem make in the months coming and in the years coming. So I want to thank you so much for joining the Smart Economy Podcast. Yeah, thanks for
1: having me on. Cheers. Well, what did
0: you think of that conversation? Austin did a great job of sharing the cultural values that tie the builders and the Solana ecosystem together, which is apparent with the Solana Foundation's attrition rate of 0% following the FTX scandal and outages in the network and the year that followed. It was also really enlightening to delve into the validator health report and listen to the various factors that comprise the strength of Solana's decentralized network. And it was just really cool to hear from a first person's perspective what it was like to fare the bear markets and to continue building and expanding and providing new features and functions for the users and builders and the Solana ecosystem. With all that said, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy Podcast. If you wanna listen to more episodes, head over to www.SmartEconomyPodcast.com. And of course, if you appreciate what we're doing with this show, please consider rating and reviewing the pod on your favorite podcast applications. Every rate and review really helps us get in front of more people's eyes and ears so that they can learn more about the podcast and the ecosystems that we cover. With all that said, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast, and we look forward to catching you next time.